will, they're, they're terrific. They will have checked mm. it out before, and it must have just suddenly gone. It's something that's almost set. Eh? We're almost set here. Mm. It's something that you check for, and they do sometimes no. it happens. Yeah. It was the, rolling. When we started rolling, the tape heads got clogged. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Sorry about the delay, Elton. You got Steve? Mind the ceiling, please. No, you can go whenever. Okay, right. <clears throat> Keep the. And then there were other domestic influences on your piano, like. And then, and then the American influences on your piano. Perfection, for some I've always striven for, and you're never going to be perfect, and you're never going to find the perfect song. Always been in search of the perfect song. And when you've written one that you think is really great, you think, well, maybe I can rhyme. No, I can rhyme better than that. It's that um, the sense of perfection. We are, we are all flawed. Um, it's just that I realise what my flaws are now. I just actually believe that there is something there that I, that's kept me here for some reason. I mean, clinically, I should be dead. Um, really? Yeah, emotionally, bad, emotionally, I was. Yeah. Emotionally, I did. I was like a carcass, David, shipped round from country to country, wheeled out and playing your song. Yeah. Here he is again. Roll up before he collapses. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That, of course, is the unmistakable voice of the great Elton John, reflecting incredibly openly about some of the major lows of his life in a television interview with David Frost in 1991. David Frost, for those of you who might be unfamiliar, was one of the world's preeminent broadcast journalists. Over a five-decade career, he'd interviewed dozens of presidents and prime ministers, famously coaxing an apology out of the disgraced US president, Richard Nixon. I let down my friends. I let down the country. I let down our system of government. I let the American people down. And I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life. He would record an astronomical number of interviews in his lifetime, well over 10,000, and not just with politicians. He spoke intimately with the world's top artists, musicians, actors, and sports heroes too. But above and beyond all of that, to me, he was just dad. My name is Wilfred Frost, and like my dad, I'm a broadcast journalist. I also look after dad's body of work, and since he died eight years ago, I've spent countless hours recovering and restoring his past interviews, many of which had been lost for decades. In season one of the Frost Tapes, we focused on interviews that had astounding resonance with current events, racial protests, women's activist movements, and of course, presidential elections. We even discovered an interview with Joe Biden that had never been broadcast. The role of a president then, it seems to me, beyond presiding over government, is to lead a society to realize what its potential is. And, and I think, David, there's a whole generation of Americans that are waiting for their chance. But for this season, we're trying something a little different. We're looking back at Dad's interviews with some of the 20th century's greatest entertainers, in particular those he had a uniquely close relationship with. Our nine episodes are on Andrew Lloyd Webber, Elizabeth Taylor, Sammy Davis Jr., Lauren Bacall, Michael Caine, Jane Fonda, Muhammad Ali, The Beatles, and first, Elton John. 
I know that's funny. Isn't it? <laughs> All right, well we're we're ready right. to start. Okay. Dad wasn't just personally close to all of our stars. He sat down with them again and again, 16 times with the Beatles, over 10 with Elton John and Muhammad Ali. The results? Intimate, long-form interviews that you simply couldn't hear anywhere else. Dad's interviews had a confessional booth quality, coaxing the world's biggest superstars to talk openly about the momentous events that shaped their lives, and ours too, of course. Welcome to season two of The Frost Tapes. In this episode, a look inside the remarkable life of one of the world's best-selling artists, Sir Elton John. Do you ever pinch yourself a bit, Elton, to think back to the uh, the working class lad or the middle class lad? When you were born, were you working class or middle class? Working class. Working class, class lad yeah. from Pinner. Yeah. Um, born in a council house, 55 Pinner Hill Road. Um, um, my mother came from a working class family, and so, as did my father, and then became very, you know, flight lieutenant and squadron leader in the Air Force. So we came from a lower background and then became middle class. Long before he was a singer-songwriter, before he'd sold 300 million records, before he wrote the best-selling single in the world, Elton John was simply Reginald Dwight, a young kid of modest means born in 1947, growing up in the northwestern suburbs of London. Between 1970 and 2005, Dad would interview Elton John ten times, and over the decades they often returned to the story of Elton's upbringing particularly how his personality was shaped by his strained relationship with his father. Listening to the hours of recordings they made together, I'm struck by how Elton, over and over, was telling my dad about his search for a personal connection in life and the sense of loneliness while that search was ongoing. Here they are in conversation in 1975, shortly after Elton became a superstar. To what extent do you think, Elton, that you're childhood formed what you are today i mean how much can you trace back your inspirations to your childhood to your mother to your father and so on uh i think my childhood has a, a great effect on what i'm doing now uh in the fact that i was always suppressed as a child um my mother gave me encouragement my father was a very big snob he was in the air force and he wouldn't let me kick the ball in the garden in case i touched the rose bushes and um, i was always sort of forced to practice the piano for three hours and but I, he was very very strict and i never saw him for years and because he used to be going to beirut and places like that um and so i was always sort of very much aware that i had a very strict upbringing and i was always very quiet and timid and i was always very fat as a child as well mm -hmm. so i mean that <laughs> that added to my complexes and i was never i could never get into the modern clothes um, and so everyone was walking around in drainpipe trousers. Here are my fox in, in baggy trousers. It was, you know, and it all built up. And so when people say, well, why do you wear flamboyant clothes now? And why do you do this and that? I never really um, was allowed to do it until I was about 21, when I was my own boss anyway. Mm. So I think that, that really sort of, I had such a, a miserable existence as a child and a teenager. Those childhood challenges clearly fascinated my dad, who asked Elton about it in this 1991 interview, and again in 1999. Were you a, 
alone as a child, partly because of uh, your father being away and then the divorce and so on? Yeah, I was very, um, very uh, withdrawn as a child. I mean, I was wheeled out at functions to play the piano and I, sh I, sh I sort of sh was a way of showing off and getting uh, attention. But I was uh, very timid, I was insecure, um, I was afraid of my father, um, not because he was particularly violent to me, but I was just afraid of him. Um, and my parents seemed to argue a lot, and uh, I used to fear him coming home, and um, my parents gave me the best that they could, I realise that now. Um, but I was, um, I did want more affection for my father. Well, you, your parents really stayed together for the sake of the child, didn't they, really? Uh, I, I, I and, think... And you, te you sensed that, I guess, the tension. I think they stayed together um, because in the 50s it was not the dumb thing to get divorced. Divorce was taboo. Um, even when my mother wanted to get divorced, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't see my father very often. Uh, if I don't see him at all. Um, I don't get on with him, um, but I don't, I, I, I don't, I, I don't hate him. Um, I don't think we ever got on from the word go. And did you know, when did you know that you wanted to follow music as a career? How old were you? I was about 13 or 14. My first love was music. I'd always been fortunate enough to grow up with records in the house, music. Um, and I'd all, I didn't want to be a performer or a singer, but maybe a keyboard player in a band. And rock and roll was beginning to happen. Uh, it was a very exciting time. Um, I used to stand in the mirror and mime to Jerry Lee Lewis records. I ate, drank and slept music all the time. Um, I loved it. And that was what I want, I mean, it was in my mind, that's what I want to do. Did you always have a fierce ambition that you were going to make it? Or is it a source of surprise? I had no ambitions to become Elton John superstar. That never entered my mind. But I thought, you know, maybe I could play in a band or I could, you know, work in a record shop or do something. As long as it was involved with me. Because music, and, and during my childhood, I created my own little world sometimes when my parents were arguing. And, and, you know, I think if, you're, if, you, if you are an only child and you come from a broken um, marriage, it gives you a steely resolve to prove to one of your parents that you can, you know, you're okay. But I think it's because of my father's and my, my position towards each other that gave me that steely resolve to prove to him that I could be something that, you know... And that determination stays with me, and it, 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 it's, it still stays with me. It's just, it's like I still have something to prove to who. Yeah. But, on, but on the other hand, I still have something to prove to myself. Eventually, Elton's mum would remarry. His relationship with his stepfather was significantly stronger, and this newfound stability helped Elton's young musical career blossom. As a 13-year-old, he joined his first group, Bluesology. How did you go about getting the first... The first real musical job was Bluesology, I suppose, wasn't it? Um, well... I remember trying to form a band locally of people, um, and it was we did form a band called Bluesology, just a local bunch of guys. But I used to play in a pub too, a public house, when I was still at school, um, and I used to play out there on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Northwood Hills Hotel. And then I started off playing, and then I started to sing as well, and it got very popular. And I, and I just used to play kind of old pub songs, you know, like. Um, <laughs> Play that now, but and then there was. Then I decided to start singing, so I, I bought a microphone and an amplifier, and then I used to sing Jim Reeves songs. Put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone, and everyone, you know, by that time, would join in all the King of the Road okay. trailer for sailor and and, oh, and Al, Al Jolson did those April showers. 
see, blooming May. And I used to get a pound a night. And then my dad, my stepfather, used to take my box around. And, and I used to get all the loot change from people. And I used to, I used to earn a lot of money that way. And, and that paid for my first musical equipment, which was a little electric piano and a microphone and amplifier and speaker. And that, and that paid for that. And then what did you do next? Then, uh, then I, I, I was at school. I decided to leave school before my A-levels, and because uh, I, I was offered a job as a, in a, a music publisher in Denmark Street. And Denmark Street was Tin Pan Alley, yeah. uh, English Tin Pan Alley. It was kind of on its beginning on its last legs, but I joined Mills Music as a T-boy, a parcel rapper-rapper, the post-boy. And I, um, I went up in the train every day from Norfolk Hills, and I went into there, and it was just a connection in the music business. And uh, while I was at Mills Music, we made a couple of records as Bluesology. One of them was Comeback Baby. That was the first record that I'd ever uh, made. Um, and that was written Can by myself. Um, Come back, baby. Come back to me. Yeah. And you will see. Yeah. La, 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 Because I'm the only one that I... I was dreadful. But you see, the thing was, I wasn't the singer of the band. Um, the Stuart A. Brown was the singer in the band, but they didn't like his voice, so I had to sing and, and wrote the song, and I wrote all the words. Elton was sitting at his piano for large portions of Dad's 1991 interview, his own grand piano at his home in Windsor, no less, with Dad leaning over enthralled. I'll be dipping back into that conversation and the music throughout the episode. Through the late 1960s as the singer of Bluesology, Elton was still Reggie Dwight, and although he was starting to move on from his broken family life, he continued to struggle with his mental health. Many are aware of Elton's struggles once he found fame, but I hadn't grasped the extent of those struggles before he found success too, until I found a bootleg copy of this previously lost 1978 interview just a few months ago. A fan had thankfully recorded the audio onto a cassette from the original broadcast. The master videotape sadly no longer exists. There was another quote of yours that I found where you said that you made a suicide attempt about the age of 21. Well, it was ridiculous. I mean, I, I got the pillow, went into the kitchen, switched the gas oven on. And actually, I was unconscious when they found me. I'd only been unconscious for about 10 minutes, but I'd left the windows wide open. So, I mean, not intentionally, I must admit. Um, I did actually swallow 80 sweet, uh, sleeping tablets about two years ago. Uh, my parents were in Los Angeles, and I came up to the pool, and I said, that's it, and I've taken 80 sleeping tablets. And my mother said, suppose I'd better get my suitcase and go home then. And I, I was crying out for someone to say, oh my God, we'd better get someone, and they completely ignored me. I was at such a desperation point, I thought, I've got to, you know, I got to get more attention from myself, as if I wasn't getting enough attention as it was. Eventually, it hurt a lot of people, and I was very sorry for, for doing it. You once said that inanimate objects had given you more happiness than human beings ever had. I feel more secure around things that I've had for years than I do around people. I've got loads of close friends, fantastic friends, and I've got no one close to me. Elton had tried to open himself up to someone before, in the late 60s, when he became engaged to a woman named Linda Woodrow. But their relationship quickly grew tense as he remained focused on his music. Uh, well, I was living with a lady for about six months who um, didn't really like my music, kept telling me I was rubbish and I'd never make it. 
and she was always saying, you better be off, off being a bank manager or something like that. I got very depressed. Um, and I was due to marry her. I got the cake and everything like that. And the, the flat and the furniture. And uh, I went out uh, to a nightclub and uh, met some Long John Baldry, who I was backing at the time. And he said, you're mad to get married because she doesn't appreciate your music. And he, he knew I was totally wrapped up in music. So I went home and said, that's it, it's off. And it, it more or less saved my life because otherwise, if I'd have got married at that particular point in time, um, I think it would have been goodbye Elton John, you know. So uh, I wasn't Elton John at the time, actually. Well, were Reg you Dwight. still Reg Dwight? I was still Reg Dwight, yes. Yeah, so, you know. But gosh, I can't see you as a bank manager either. Well, I look like a bank manager. That's why I always say when people say, what do you think, what do you describe yourself as? Well, like a freaked out bank manager. I'm not your actual Mick Jagger um, or anybody, or your David Bowie. Uh, I'm sort of like the boy next door who freaked out all of a sudden. In fact, it was from Long John Baldry that you got part of your name. Yeah, I got the John part. The saxophone player in our band was called Elton, and I wanted, when it was time for me to choose a name, um, because Reg Dwight, I didn't think, would exactly set the world on fire as a stage name, uh, I, th I just picked Elton because, actually, I hadn't heard of anybody called Elton. I thought, nobody's got the name of Elton. It's like, you had, I wanted to pick a name that nobody had, like, there's only one Elvis, right? I mean, there has been only really one Elvis, and uh, I thought, well, it's an easy name to identify with, and it, in hindsight, it was a good choice. Very good choice. In hindsight, of course, it was a wonderful choice teaming up with Bernie Taupin in 1967, who wrote, wrote your lyrics of so many of your great songs and so on. Just before he decided to break off his engagement, Elton had seen an advertisement in NME magazine that Liberty Records was seeking new talent. Elton decided to write in an audition, but was not immediately successful. After the audition, he confessed he didn't write lyrics. Rather than totally reject Elton, the team at Liberty handed him an envelope. As it turns out, a 17-year-old aspiring songwriter had also responded to the same ad, leaving the agency with some of his freshly penned lyrics. That night, Elton opened up the envelope and found sheets and sheets of lyrics, written by Bernie Taupin. It was the beginning of one of the most fruitful artistic relationships of the 20th century. And of course, the thing that fascinates everybody about that relationship, apart from the fact that it's gone on so long, is that the lyrics come first and, and not the music, which is not unique, but it is the exception to the rule, isn't it? It's not unique, but it's the most... A, as you say, it would be 25 years next year that we've been together. It's a long time for a songwriting partnership to last. Um, and the songs are always usually written melodies. Nice nervous at the time, melodies after the lyrics had been given to me. So Bernie would give me a lyric. In the old days, it was handwritten. And I would get a, a lyric in front of me, and I would look at it, find out whether I think it would be slow, fast, but I thought the music should go with the text. But, I mean, if you take something like, for instance, that you played the first time we, we ever met, that I heard you play in the flesh on the David Frost show, your song. Now, I yeah. mean, how, take that as a specific example. What would have happened? Bernie would have handwritten a lyric. Yeah, and, and I would have just... Got it, and I usually play basically chord sequences. Come, I'll, I'll play, I'll, I'll fiddle around, and then I think, oh, I like that. Can't change them, and so I. It's a little bit funny. It's feeling inside, and that's not quite right. I'll change the chord. It's a little bit funny, and then this feeling inside. No, and it happens very quickly. I mean, once I start, once I get the beginning, but I'm off. Half an hour or an hour, you said? Mm, well, actually, no, it's, it's that, in those days, 
It took me about 15, 20 minutes to write it and half an hour and I had to memorise it because I didn't put it on tape. I didn't put any of the songs on tape. So at one point I had about 30 or 40 songs stockpiled in my head that I'd written on, by memory. So actually the actual writing of them, the, the combining of the melody and the, and, the, and the text, didn't take much more than 20 minutes. And when you got to the end of that one, for instance, how wonderful life is yeah, while you're, you're in the world. world. Now how did you work out what you were going to do there? You'd worked out the mood by that point yeah. of the song, you'd want the tone of it, and then how, how, did, how did that thought come to you? We lived in my parents' um, apartment, and he would be in the bedroom writing lyrics, and I would be in the, in the living room playing the piano. And I'd finish it, and uh, I wouldn't play it to him until I was finished with it. And then I'd go in and I'd excitedly play it to him and say, oh, isn't that great? And then as soon as that was done, I'd, find, I'd start another one. It was a combination of two people that sort of, when they got together, the, 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 the ingredients were right. And what was, the first, what was the first song that you and Bernie had recorded? Um, the first song that I think we recorded was a decent song was Skyline Pigeon, which was from the Empty Sky album, which is still a lovely song. And it's, you know, one... We, we wrote lots of other songs before then, which were really sort of esoteric, sort of gibberish. Um, and it was, you know, you had to realise it was flower power at this time, and uh, a lot of pretentious style lyrics. But Scarlet Pigeon was a nice song, because it's got a... I wanted to write... The lyrics are so beautiful. Like, I mean, there's a shining example. Scarlet Pigeon is sitting there, and it's turn me loose from your hands, let me fly to distant lands over green fields, trees and mountains. So those four lines, for me, sound like a hymn. It's the sort of thing you sing in church. So immediately I saw that, I went, ah, oh, let's get a chord sequence like a hymn. So the opening of the song goes... That's the sort of thing, you look at it instantly and think, that's what that's going to be. Sometimes he's shocked by the results of the things that he's written, thinking they're going to be slow and they're fast, but, hey, listen, we've never had an argument in our 20... Uh, over a song. He's been... To think I have the ability um, and the free hand to, uh, to do whatever I like with somebody's lyrics, and they must be... You know, when you write something, they're very precious. They're, they're, his 50% of the songs are his. I'm not very good on lyrics, for example. Every time I do a tour, I have to rehearse and get all the old lyric sheets out. Cause I've got to, <laughs> I mean, when I hear a song on the radio, I always get the words where I'm singing along with it. I'm not very good. I listen to the melody. I'm a melody man. But I, I, most people do listen to lyrics. They, and I do with other people's songs. I mean, there are points in your life when you must have been somewhere, you've been in love, or you've heard a song, and it stuck with you because you remember a particular occasion or a mood that you were in. Mm. Um, and that's happened to me on occasion. And usually, in my case, it was uh, very sad songs, because I was, you know, sad songs seem to be, sometimes I, they stick to me like glue, because I've been so unhappy sometimes. Um, Sadness triggers off. Your muse, your musical muse, doesn't mm. it? I mean, presumably it can be more difficult to write a song while you're angry, let's say. But, what, but do you write better when you're sad than when you're happy? Um, I, I don't think... I, I think I just write... I don't think it makes much difference, David. I, I like writing sad songs, I must admit. I like sad chord sequences. I like minor chord sequences. Which, like... What do you mean? Um... Uh, what, I, let me think, let me... What am I gonna do to make you love me? The minor chords, then a major. What am I gonna do to make you care? And, and that, those minor chords are always, I love those kind of sad sight songs. Um, That's the Elton sound, you know? Yeah, That's it's a yeah, characteristic yeah. Elton sound, isn't it?
where the classical training came in handy because yeah. of the shape of the chords and the there's, it's an a, a, a flat chord with an E flat in the bass, which is something one would have never done without musical training. I would have never picked that up. And uh, I owe those sort of chords to Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, because I think one of the biggest influences on my writing was the, the Beach Boys, uh, Brian Wilson in particular. He was one of the first composers that took a root chord like that, in, which is an ordinary A flat, but when you put an E flat on the bass, it changes it. Gives it drama. Mm. And drama, you have to have drama in songs too. I mean, uh, but I like right. I love sad music. I love sad, sad things. I've always, I've always cried a lot as a kid. I want, and I cry. I've always been very attracted to sad things. Beautiful pieces of music like Enigma Variations by Elgar makes me cry. Um, I find it very, very moving. I always cry when I hear it. By 1970, that distinct Elton sound was still unfamiliar to most people. Elton was still a nobody. In fact, he was such a nobody that his American record label, Uni Records, had signed him for an advance of zero dollars. But eventually, Elton's relationship with Torpin would work its magic. In the spring of 1970, the duo would release Border Song. While we're on the subject of songs and how they come about, when Border Song came out in 1970, people said there was a lot of influence, not so much the Beach Boys and that, but the influence there was a gospel influence. Yeah. Who, do you, who do you attribute that to? So if you looked at all, uh, all the songs I've written and the records that i made, there's uh, traces of every sort of music in there, um, from schmaltzy ballads to rock and roll to R&B. But uh, the Border Song was... Which is very classical, yeah, yeah. but... but I think the Elton John album was a fusion uh, of classical and, and sort of black uh, music. That song would break the Billboard Top 100 in the US, and at the same time, Elton booked his first gig stateside, playing at the Troubadour in Los Angeles. The pay for the whole band was $150. But while the Troubadour shows didn't boost his bank balance, they transformed his fortunes. In the crowd was Robert Hilburn, a music critic with the LA Times. Hilburn called Elton's music staggeringly original that defies classification. He presciently went on that Elton was going to be one of rock's biggest and most important stars. Well, funnily enough, that was one of the things, 1970, the historic night at the Troubadour, and that review by Robert Hilburn said exactly what you just said, in fact. It said, here's a man, not only rock's got a new star, but said his, his music is not just one field, but he's creating his own field by mixing them all up. I mean, that, he said that on your, I mean, that was the change of your whole life, that was, wasn't mm. it? Because of the Elton John album and the cover, which was very dark and, you know, the little studious boy with the glasses on. And um, because we had played live before we went, uh, and I can't stress this more, uh, importantly enough, I'd, all those ex years of experience playing with Baldry and all those black artists, those wonderful black singers, had given me a lot of experience. So when I went there, I thought, right, you bastards, I'm going to really, you know, wait till you hear this. And it was a shock because I came out in hot pants and, and a beard and uh, Mr. Freedom type. They, everything that they saw on the album cover, I wasn't on the stage. So it was a contradiction in the notes. But it was something 
It was the right place at the right time. How often have we seen that? And, and, and that show you did, how many songs were there in the show? Was there one that really, one that really, one point in the show when you knew, I've got him? Um, I don't know. I was, I can't remember much about it because I was terrified. Were you? Um, there were so many, there was Quincy Jones in the audience and the second night there was Leon Russell. And at that point, Leon Russell was my biggest idol. And there was so many people who I admired and, uh, it seemed, you know, it seemed like a fairy story, you know, and it, and it kind of was. It was, I kept pinching myself thinking, is this really happening to me? Um, and uh, it happened so quickly. Um, it was kind of overnight in New York, in Los Angeles and Chicago. Um, it was all so delightful for me. The first five years of my career, I did a lot of touring. I've made separate singles apart from albums. I was so enthusiastic. I was, I loved it. I have an, an enormous affection for American audiences. They made me a star. Um, mm. um, and um, I don't know, there, isn't, there is always the magic of playing in America. Um, and did your fingers bleed for them? They always do, yeah. They, um, when you play as hard as I do, and I, you know, I really thump the thing. Um, the thing. The thing. Elton John plays the thing. The thing. The thing. Um, and of course, and you're talking about days when uh, amplification of pianos was very... Um, Ooh, unsophisticated. So to get the sound out, I mean, I, I would play twice as hard, and I'd break my nails, and the, and the nails would go into the skin, and then, and I would be in agony. But you know, it, it, after a while, it wasn't agony. After th a week, you, your hands hardened up, and I didn't mind. I was playing. I was a kid in a candy store. It was it was terrific fun, and it was success came very quickly. I didn't get very big headed at that time uh, because I didn't have time to think about it. Elton's success exploded, and so did his productivity. The early and mid-70s saw him write classics such as Tiny Dancer, Honky Cat, Rocket Man, Levon, and Daniel. The poor boy from Pinner was suddenly rich and famous, collaborating with John Lennon and playing to sold-out crowds in Madison Square Garden. But overall, despite the mounting fame, Elton remained remarkably straight-edged in the first half of the 70s. Philip Norman his new book says at the time you were the simplest, healthiest, most clean living performer rock had ever known. And that was at the beginning of that. <laughs> it changed that. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on. <laughs> in fact, an admission in Rolling Stone magazine would cause his career to plateau. Every artist has his few years at the top um, uh, when they can do no wrong. And, and I actually had the foresight to know that would happen. Um, and I knew that I could not stay at number one forever. So I knew that there would be a levelling out, and indeed there was after 1976, my career levelled out. And also, I think in America, I, in 1976 in Rolling Stone, I said that I was bisexual, and uh, it was something that um, I don't regret saying, but I think it had a, a bit of a chilling effect on people in America that um, were uh, not surprised maybe, but they didn't really want to know about it, and they were, they, they were, they, they were offended by it. Um, I wasn't aware that they would be, but they'd certainly, it did hurt my career a lot um, in, in areas that I didn't imagine when, when one How can do say, you mean? What, in ways I, think, you didn't I, I think it shocked a lot of people. Um, I didn't think it was a big deal, but on, 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 on retrospect, there's no hiding the truth, it did hurt my career. And if you had your time over again, it, would it have hurt your career a few years later, do you think? I mean, I mean, it was just that you were early to say it, really, I suppose, was it? And I just thought most people knew anyway, so um, I don't regret saying it at all. Um, nobody, had, I mean, people, had, there had been rumblings and rumours, and there always are, but no one actually had come out and had the balls to ask me, and the guy who interviewed me for Rolling Stone asked me, and I said, yes, OK, I'll 
Um, I didn't. I didn't really foresee the consequences that it would have. Do you think it's more difficult to be happy being bisexual? No, I don't really think so at all. I, I've never had any problem with my sexuality. Um, that's one of the first, one of the few things I've been able to accept uh, in my life. But from 1976 onwards, even in the face of his stratospheric rise to fame, Elton's personal demons came to the fore, and he started to spiral out of control. Even though I was communicating and having great success in front of all these thousands and thousands of people, and I was very good at it, and I was communicating it, but they were far away. On a one-to-one -one level with people, face-to-face, -face, in a room, if I had to go into a room full of people and I didn't know them, I would be petrified. And um, I, I'd really shake, and, and I wouldn't have the confidence in myself to do it. I was still the same scared little Reg, uh, and, and the insecure and shy person. And yet there was this other side of me that was acting out on stage and entertaining. Um, but that was what I did for a living, and that was what I loved doing that. But that wasn't how you cope with normal life. That's, that's fantasy land. And how do you cope with normal life when you've got to go into a room and you're terrified and you're the great Elton John? Mm. I mean, that's when you drink or you take uppers or you strengthen yourself in that way, is it? Or, what, or did you just I started, not get into I started, I, started, I didn't drink really that much before I, I, um, I became successful. Uh, but I did, uh, when I went to parties, I went to the opening of a wallet. You know, I, I went to everything because I was having fun. Um, <laughs> but I always had a drink to make me feel more comfortable. Yeah, 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 yeah. because on a one-to-one -one basis, if I had a drink in my hand, I'd feel a little safer. Um, so I did that, and then uh, later on I started taking drugs too. Um, and I thought after I took drugs, uh, that, um, that broke down all my barriers because I thought, well, I can really communicate now. I mean, I can make me, uh, it made me open up, it made me talk. I would never talk before I was, you know, I would be so scared. So I was under the f illusion that drugs made me open up, and they did to a certain extent, but, you know, having, this was a long time ago, and um, I think when you first take drugs, they're enjoyable um, to a certain extent because they're new. It's, and I felt that I was part of the gang. I felt I'd really arrived when I started taking drugs. Yeah, I'm one of the, and finally, I finally, I take drugs, so I'm finally accepted. I'm one of the in crowd. But eventually, after a lot, a lot of drinking and a lot of drug taking, it closed me right back down again and made me the isolated, unhappy person that I've already was in the first place, really. Mm. I've never really known how to communicate with people on a one-to-one -one basis. Um, I've always been afraid. I've, my life was built on fear uh, of not being able to show, be, you know, say what I wanted to because you know, I, I come from a strict, strict upbringing and emotions aren't something that people... You don't show them. You don't show them, no. Not when you're a child. And I was, I was terrified. Um, and I had all the success, I had all the trappings, and I loved that and everything, but they really, they didn't make me any happier. I'm a compulsive, impulsive person. I can't have one drink, and I can't have one drug, and I can't have one, as you've seen, one pair of glasses, <laughs> and I have one car. That's my makeup, and unfortunately, it got more and more out of hand. While I'm well aware of the depth of Dad and Elton's friendship, the frankness of this portion of their 1991 interview continues to astonish me, recorded so soon after he came out of rehab following 15 years of addiction. I became a different person from the, the, the 1970 to the 1976, the body of work, the success. Um, I, was, I think I was quite reasonable to, to be with them. Uh, from then, Ponomus from 1976 to 1991, uh, 1990, um, It was a catalogue of happy times, un very unhappy times, um, 
periods of sobriety, periods of intense and utter pain and distress, uh, heightened by the fact that I took uh, lots of drugs and drank a lot. And it got me to the position where I didn't really want to live. I, I used to get, get up in the morning and groan oh. and say, God, I don't, you know, that's if I got up at all. And, you know, I have so much to be grateful for. And I was so self-full of self-pity and I was so, I didn't know what to do. You know, I'm a very proud man. Um, I, I couldn't ask for help. I knew there was something wrong with me, but I couldn't admit that I was wrong. And I couldn't admit that I needed to be helped. I became spiteful, I became angry, I became irritable. Um, and I hated that, but I couldn't stop. Um, I hated myself in the end. I really hated myself. So from, you know, it was a pretty sad, but it was, meanwhile, the career was still going. The only thing I had to cling on to was the career. So the hits were still coming up. God knows how they were. And that's what kept me going. I mean, that love of the music, I mean, and the fact that I still was competitive. As strong as I was, as far as my, um, my stamina and my will, my willpower was actually driving me in the wrong direction. My willpower was killing me. Um, so, I decided one day um, that maybe, or someone decided for me that maybe I couldn't, I couldn't do this on my own. Maybe I'd come to the end of my tether so many times that this was about time now that if I didn't... When, when, when was that? Um, Who was that? When was that? Uh, it was in 1990. That uh, someone just sat me down and said, listen, I love you very much, but um, get, you know, this is ridiculous. And I was ready to hear it. I didn't tell him to get out of the room. I didn't tell him to, I didn't use abusive language. I didn't lose my temper with him. I needed to hear it. There are times in one life where you, you need it. It's just, but the timing has to be right. So many people have tried to tell me before, Elton, for God's sake, do something. Don't do this to yourself. Don't be so self-destructive. You know, we love you, we love you, love you. And as I say, the people who I, the thing that gives me respect is the people around me and the people that supported me. And I, I was letting them down, but my, I was letting myself down and, uh, and this was July 1990. And then July someone who I love very much came up and said, listen, I love you, but I'm not prepared to love you anymore unless you do something about this. Because I'm, I'm so worried, sick about you. My mother had had to move away. My family, my, fam my mother and stepfather had to move to Spain. They were so upset with my behavior. My mother said, I don't have a son anymore. You know, I, when she used to ring me up, I was, couldn't be bothered to talk to her. I gave her Cartier bracelets, Cartier rings, cars. But I didn't give her what a mother needs most from her son, and that's some time, some love, some compassion. I just actually believe that there is something there that I, that's kept me here for some reason. I mean, clinically, I should be dead. Um, really? Yeah, emotionally, bad, emotionally, I was. Yeah. Emotionally, I'm dead. I saw Elvis Presley a week before he died, or about a, no, a year before he died, in a week. And I saw him in Washington, D.C. And he, he was, I looked into his eyes, there was nothing there. And in the end, there was nothing there with me. Dad, in fact, reflected with Elton on what he felt about that 1991 interview years later and Elton's incredible honesty in it. We did this interview a long time ago when I just came out of... Uh... Oh, that was inspiring to people. Um, 1991, yeah. when you had, you'd gone in for rehab or whatever one calls it in 1990, shortly yeah. following the death of Ryan White, wasn't right. it? And, and, and you would come out then and, you've, and you, you used the word sober. You've been, in terms of... Uh, addiction to drugs or addiction to alcohol. Um, you've been sober, as you put it, for the rest of the night. Yeah, for, and the best thing I ever did in my life. 
Around 1990, Elton turned his life around, in part thanks to the interventions of his friends and loved ones, but also as Dad just referenced because he witnessed the hardships endured by a teenager from Indiana called Ryan White, and hearing about Ryan's struggles helped cut through the fog of his addiction. White had been diagnosed with AIDS after he received a contaminated blood transfusion in the mid-1980s. He faced unimaginable discrimination, from being banned from school to local residents refusing to touch the newspapers he delivered to them. One day, his family even came home to find a bullet hole in their living room. When Elton learned about White's problems, he wanted to help. He helped pay for the family's down payment on a house when they moved out of town. He visited Ryan in hospital when he became sick for the last time in 1990. And when Ryan died, just one month before his high school graduation, Elton was one of the pallbearers and sang at the funeral. That obviously had a profound effect on you, that whole experience. Well, to, if, if I would be truthful, I would say that was the thing that really planted the seeds in my mind, that, um, that, uh, that something was drastically wrong with me. Um, I went to Indianapolis to help Jeannie White, his mother, cope with the funeral, uh, and, and when he was dying, or cope with when he was dying that week. Um, and I was just genuinely touched by the compassion. And the... Um, they didn't have any bitterness about what had happened to him, about the people who had treated him badly, and about the, one, the horrible thing that had happened to him, the most terrible bad luck and cruel, cruel thing that had happened to their family. And they were just gracious, and they were decent Christian people. They were just wonderful. And I thought, God, Elton, these people have been through so much. And I would walk into a hotel room and complain about the I don't like this wallpaper, I hate this room. I, I'd fly away by private jet, I'd moan about the colour of the private jet. That's how out of touch I was. And I got to thinking then, I thought, Christ, it was one of the most moving experiences of my life being there for that week and seeing that family. Not just Ryan's death, not just Ryan, but the whole family. Um, their compassion, it brought me back to reality. And it wasn't long afterwards, in fact, after that, that I started to get my life together. Um, and, and so you were, you were ready for the message in July 1990, and, and you were ready for the messenger as well, which was important, mm. yeah. where it was coming from. What have you done then? That was, what, nearly 18 months ago. How have you changed your life for the last 18 months? I've changed it completely, actually. Um, I don't drink anymore, I don't take drugs anymore, and I don't, um, I'm not bulimic anymore. Um, uh, when you give up things like that, that's made a hell of a difference because chemically, things like that made me very depressed. The last 16 months of my life have been the most joyous time of my life. I actually look forward to getting up. I can cope with success. I don't feel guilty about what I've got. Um, I'm beginning gradually to find out maybe who I am. I entered recovery um, wanting to, to recover because I was so unhappy and so miserable that anything was preferable to the state that I was in. So I decided to... Um, to go into hospital and, and for six weeks. And it was the best thing I ever did for myself. And my life got better, and got better and better and better. My family came back from Spain. Uh, my mother and I talk all the time, every day on the phone. I've learned to help other people. I've learned to be there for other people. I've learned to, um, to try and be a decent, decent human being again. Uh, I think I always was, but I lost it somewhere along the line. There are so many millions of people who have the same problems as me, and they don't communicate um, because they don't think people want to be there for them. And if any of you are out there listening, just it's, it's okay to ask for help. I didn't think it was because I thought it was a sign of weakness. In fact, it's um, 
a very spiritual thing to do, to ask another human being to help you. Um, and I'm very glad I did. And now, as a result, my life has changed so much. One of the most significant changes Elton made, in large part inspired by Ryan White, was founding the Elton John AIDS Foundation in 1992. He set the charity up at a time when AIDS had become the leading cause of death among young men in America. Now, in the 90s, one of the big events in the 90s in your life, it was 92, was when you, first of all, you announced that all your single sales were going to go to AIDS charities, and then you founded the Elton John AIDS Foundation. I mean, that was a major step, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's been a major... It's been passion a passion of yours ever yeah. since. Well, it's something that's an ongoing commitment and will be for the rest of my life. In Africa, where the, the situation is so dreadful because of the, the, the sanitary problems, um, there's no medicine, there's no medical, there's, there's a, you know, the stigma of AIDS is unbelievable. Um, there are 35 million people living in, this, in the world today with HIV and AIDS. And it, the virus is so clever, it will mutate economically is a disaster. So yes, I started the AIDS Foundation and we started off as a direct care, helping people in hospices get, um, get food, get medicine, get looked after, get housing. The Elton John AIDS Foundation has raised more than $600 million for HIV prevention programs, helping countless lives across dozens of countries. We're going to beat this. We're going to do this. We're really going to give money. I think the message is beginning to hit home. This is a crippling, crippling disease. Again, you're not going to have an instant solution because the infrastructure is so difficult. Um, but there is progress. The 90s was such a key decade for Elton. Not only did he overcome his addiction and find purpose in humanitarian work, he also rediscovered his creativity. He began writing songs for films and the Broadway stage. He even won an Oscar for Can You Feel the Love Tonight in Disney's Lion King. But of all of his accomplishments that decade, his greatest happiness came not from his songwriting successes, but from his personal relationships. Decades earlier, Elton had told Dad, I have so many close friends, but nobody close to me. But after his recovery, that would all change, because Elton would meet his future husband, David Furnish. In terms of relationships, you also said that, because that's been one of the great things about this decade, that... Um it took me more than 40 years to find someone like David, and uh, now I have. I mean, that's been one of the great things, the relationship with David. We get on very well. We're like, it's, I think any relationship, you, you've been with Karina for so long and have this wonderful relationship, you have to be best friends too. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to, you know, there are ups and downs in every relationship, and David and I have our rows, but they soon get sorted out because we have very, a, lot of, a lot of things in common. Um, we like... You know, the same kind of things, um, and he's very supportive of me, I'm very supportive of him, uh, and it's worked, you know, it works very, very well. Elton and David would get married in 2005. As for starting a family, Dad had asked Elton about possibly wanting to have children back in the early 90s. You'd have been a terrific father, actually, wouldn't you? I don't would know. Would you like to have been? You were... I have, you know, it's, I, to be honest, there are times when I really like to, I'm, I'm godfather to quite a few children. I mean, I... I don't know. How do you know if you're going to be a good father? Children, children are, I'm always, I suppose children are frightening people to meet because they cut through all the bullshit of life. You know, when you're young, you're very truthful. But, you know, you have children. You know that they can say things to you and they hit you right through. It's straight through. That's right on the money. 
While hesitant in the 90s, once happily settled with David, Elton ultimately decided to have children, Zachary in 2010 and Elijah in 2013. Earlier this year, he said, quote, Having a minute with them is worth more than any painting, any photograph, any house or any hit record. Of course, it's not been all positive since the early 90s for Elton. There were major emotional low points too. In 1997, Elton's close friend, Diana, Princess of Wales, died suddenly in a car crash in Paris while being chased by paparazzi. He famously sang a revised version of Candle in the Wind at Diana's funeral. The scale of the event was enormous, with over 30 million watching in the UK and an estimated audience of 2.5 billion worldwide. Dad and Mum, who'd been close to Diana, were also there. The day after the funeral, Dad and Elton met to reflect on the moment. It was the kind of interview that only Dad could get, a vulnerable moment for both men. It was a glimpse into the mutual trust they shared. Seeing you there just before you sang the song, uh, I think... We all felt for you at that moment because it must have been the most daunting or nerve-wracking moment of your life. Actually, yeah, it probably was, but not until I started actually singing and playing and then I suddenly realised that this, this was it. I think at the beginning of the, the last verse, my voice cracked and I was really chock full of emotion then and I just had to close my eyes and you know, grit my teeth and get through it. Um, it was just such a huge relief to have actually sung it and not got the words wrong or... Uh. Well, of course, you mentioned that to me in advance, that the, you've been singing those other words. You knew the new words, <laughs> but you'd been singing the other words for 23 years, and the, the nightmare was that habit might take over. Exactly. Well, I mean, this song was really rewritten on Tuesday night. I rang Bernie Taupin, who lives in California, and explained the circumstances that it wouldn't be appropriate to sing Cow of the Wind in the old version because it was about somebody else and would he do a, a rewrite? And he did it within the hour, actually. Um, I actually had a teleprompter there just to help me. I have to say, I, I cheated. But That's I just thought, I'm not going to mess this one up on, on such a big occasion. Would you like to see a change in the laws regarding the press? <sighs> We've had all this wailing and um, caterwauling from people in the show business. Um, I mean, it's a nuisance, I have to say it. It really is a nuisance, and it, it is frightening sometimes when paparazzi crowd around you. But if I would be a liar to sit here and say that what I go through is as daunting as what she, she went through. But I think it's part and parcel of, um, of what we are and, what we, and the business we're in, and I don't really see how it's going to change. Um, I just hope for her son's sake that they, they do leave them alone. Candles burned out long before What's the nearest you've got to a perfect song? Um, well, in the way I write, it's a marriage of music and lyric, you see. So um, I would I think Candle in the Wind is probably quite close to that because... Um, Why do you particularly pick on Candle in the Wind? Because of the marriage of words and music? Yeah, it's a poignant lyric on a, about a tragic thing How that happened. How do you happened. go about that one? Well, again, it's, it comes back to the hymnal quality of some of the mm. things I write. Um, sacrifice, for example, is... 
kind of the wind is. Goodbye, number team, though I never knew you at all. You have the grace to hold yourself. They're all those sort of hymns. When in doubt, write a hymn. Because then people, if you want a poignant song that will touch people, I mean, there's nothing more poignant sometimes than a hymn, um, and, and, uh, a good hymn, a good melodic hymn. And that's what Candle in the Wind is, really. It's a hymn. There are certain songs that you know when you finish them, they're a little bit more special than others. They don't come around that often, and you just can't pull them out of thin air. Um, you're always in search of that holy grail, the most perfect song. Mm. Um, and that's what keeps you going. You want to reduce people to tears. You want to make them happy. You want them to, um, a song to be a special part of their life. That they go, oh my God, I was there when I first heard that song. Like it happens to me, you know, when I hear a song for the first time, I think, God, that's so great. And I can remember where I am and where I was when I first heard it. Um, and that's what music does to people. It's uplifting. Elton is still producing fresh music today. In fact, when Cold Heart hit number one in the UK last October, he became the first artist to have a UK number one in six different decades. And he's still performing it for us. He remains one of the greatest live performers in the world at the age of 74. He's currently performing his farewell tour, with the last live show scheduled for May of 2023. You love being on stage, don't you? used to say yeah. that's where you really come yeah. alive before the... Yeah. Uh, years ago, people used to say, when you were 23, what will you be doing at... 40 yeah. or 44 or whatever. Mm. Um, now, what will you be doing at 60? Would you like to be doing all this then, too? I'd like to be as happy as I am now. I'd like to still be performing. I'd still like to be writing songs. Uh, I'd still like to be uh, involved in life. Um, I was a kid born in the council house from a very working-class family. Um, I've met some incredible people. I met Mae West, I met the President of the United States, I met the whole Roy family, I met all my idols, Elvis Presley, Fats Domino, Little Richard. Um, I've met politicians, I've had tea with Lech Walesa. Um, incredible stuff, who would have ever thought it? Um, I've danced with the Queen at Windsor Castle. Um, um, but all those wonderful things don't mean anything if you are unhappy. Uh, I tell you, people, I, I just generally like to say this it's a miracle that um, my life's been fucking brilliant. It's been wonderful. And I'm very excited about the next 20 years of my life. Dad's final interview with Elton was 17 years ago, in 2005. And no doubt Sir Elton would say today that his life was even more brilliant than it was then, given how much he's achieved professionally since. But more importantly, the balance and happiness he has in his personal life with his husband David and sons Zachary and Elijah. As an enormous Elton fan myself, I've so enjoyed making this episode of The Frost Tapes. It seems odd to say this about someone who's sold 300 million records, but it's been learning about how he so bravely and effectively overcame his personal demons that's fascinated me most of all. I'm not sure if he's ever talked so openly about that to anyone other than his friend, my dad, David Frost. And the only addiction left in your life is shopping. Yes, David. And I'm going to take you out right now and buy you a fabulous ball gun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for a wonderful session. Thank you. 
In the next episode of The Frost Tapes, we hear from another songwriting genius, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I was in New York, and I was one of those second-hand bookshops. I saw The Phantom of the Opera, 50 Cents or something, you know, the Gaston Leroux book. And so I thought, well, I'm not doing anything much this afternoon. It was a Sunday. I'll buy it, and I bought it and read it. And by the end of the evening, I realized that I'd found, you know, the next subject. The Frost Tapes is a production of Paradine Productions and Chalk and Blade. Executive producers are Wilfred Frost, George Frost, Laura Sheeter, Ruth Barnes, and Nigel Sinclair. Produced by Lily Ames, Rosie Stouffer, and Matt Nielsen. Written by Lucas Riley and Wilfred Frost. Sound design and mixing by Alex Portfelix and Matt Nielsen. Music composed by Pascal Wise. Candle in the Wind, 97, performed by Elton John, courtesy of EMI Records, under license from Universal Music Operations Limited. With special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions, to Whitehorse Pictures, to A&E Television Networks, and to Marty Mitchell.